Our scripture lesson today comes from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. At once, the one who had received the five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Aya, I've got a new book for us today. Perhaps it's one you read before. Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. Did anybody see the movie? Yeah, it was a pretty fun movie. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's read the book. It's going to be a challenge for me here. I'm going to try not reading upside down today. At the far end of town, where the grickle grass grows, and the wind smells slow and sour when it blows, and no birds ever sing excepting, the, excepting old crows, it is the street of the lifted Lorax. And deep in the grickle grass, some people say, if you look deep enough, you can still see today where the Lorax once stood just as long as it could before somebody lifted the Lorax away. What was the Lorax, and why was it there? And why was it lifted and taken somewhere from the far end of town where the grickle grass grows? 
The old onceler still lives here. Ask him, he knows. You won't see the onceler, don't knock at his door. He stays in his lurkum on top of his store. He lurks in his lurkum, cold under the roof, where he makes his own clothes out of miff muffler moof. I don't know what that is. And on special dank midnights in August, he peeks out of the shutters, and sometimes he speaks and tells how the Lorax was lifted away. He'll tell you, perhaps, if you're willing to pay. On the end of a rope, he lets down a tin pail, and you have to toss in 15 cents and a nail, and the shell of a great-great-great-grandfather snail. Then he pulls up the pail, makes a most careful count to see if you've paid him the proper amount. Then he hides what you've paid him away in his snove, his secret strange hole in his grivelous glove. Then he grunts, I will call you by whisper my phone, for the secrets I tell are for your ears alone. Slup, down slups the whisper my phone to your ear, and the old onceler whispers are not very clear, since they have to come down through a snurgly hose, and he sounds as if he had smallish bees up his nose. Now I'll tell you, he says, with his teeth sounding gray, how the Lorex got lifted and taken away. It all started way back, such a long time back. Way back in the days when the grass was still green and the pond was still wet and the clouds were still clean and the song of the Swami Swam rang out in space, one morning I came to this glorious place. And I first saw the trees, the truffula trees the bright-colored tufts on the truffula trees, mile after mile in the fresh morning breeze. And under the trees I saw brown barbalutes frisking about in their barbalute suits, and they played in the shade and ate truffula fruits. From the ripulous pond came the comfortable sound of the humming fish humming while splashing around. But those trees, those trees, those truffle trees, all my life I'd been searching for trees such as these. The touch of their tufts was much softer than silk, and they had the sweet smell of fresh buttery milk. I felt a great leaping of joy in my heart. I knew just what I'd do. I'd unload my cart. In no time at all, I had built a small shop. Then I chopped down a truffle tree with one chop. And with great skillful skill and with great speedy speed, I took the soft tuft and I knitted a thneed. The instant I'd finished, I heard a gazump. I looked, I saw something pop out of the stump of the tree I'd chopped down. It was sort of a man. Describe him? That's hard. I don't know if I can. He was a shortish and oldish and brownish and mossy, and he spoke with a voice that was sharpish and bossy. Mister, he said with a sawdusty sneeze, I am the Lorax, I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongue, and I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs. He was very upset as he shouted and puffed, What's that thing you've made out of my truffle truff But the very next minute, I 
think I've skipped a page. I did. <laughs> Look, Lorax, I said, there's no cause for alarm. I chopped just one tree. I am doing no harm. I am being quite useful. This thing is a, th a thneed. A thneed is a fine something that all people need. It's a shirt, it's a sock, it's a glove, it's a hat. But it has other uses, yes, far beyond that. You can use it for carpets, for pillows, for sheets, or curtains or covers for bicycle seats. The Lorax said, sir, you are crazy with greed. There is no one on earth that would buy that fool need. But the very next minute, I proved he was wrong, for just at that minute, a chap came along. And he thought that the need I had knitted was great. He happily bought it for three ninety-eight. I laughed at the Lorax, you poor stupid guy. You never can tell what some people will buy. I repeat, cried the Lorax, I speak for the trees. I'm busy, I told him, shut up if you please. I rushed across the room and in no time at all, I built a radio phone, I put in a quick call. I called all my brothers and uncles and aunts and I said, listen here, here's a wonderful chance for the whole Wunzler family to get mighty rich. Get over here fast, take the road to North Niche. Turn left at Weehawken, we sharp right at South Stitch. And in no time at all, in the factory I built, the whole Wunzler family was working full tilt, where we all knitted the needs just as busy as bees to the sound of the clapping of truffula trees. Then, oh baby, oh, how my business did grow. Now chopping one tree at a time was too slow. So I quickly invented my super axe hacker, which, was, which whacked off four truffula trees at one smacker. We were making the need four times as fast as before, and that Lorax, he didn't show up anymore. But the next week, he knocked on my new office door. He slapped, he slapped, snapped, I'm the Lorax who speaks for the trees, which you seem to be chopping as fast as you please, but I'm also in charge of the brown barbalutes who play in the shade of the barbalute suits and happily lived eating truffula fruits. Now, thanks to your hacking my trees to the ground, there's not enough truffle of fruit to go around, and my poor barbalutes are all getting the crummies because they have gas and no food in their tummies. They loved living here, but I can't let them stay. They'll have to find food, and I hope that they may. Good luck, boys, he cried, and they sent them away. I, the Wunzler, felt sad as I watched them all go, but business is business and business must grow, regardless of crummies and tummies, you know. I meant no harm, I mostly did not, but I had to grow bigger, so bigger I got. I biggered my factory, I biggered my roads, I biggered my wagons, I biggered my, the loads. Of the needs I shipped out, I was shipping them Fourth, to the south, to the east, to the west, to the north. I went right on biggering, slicing morth needs, and I biggered my money, which everyone needs. Then again, he came back. I was fixing some pipes when that old nuanced Lorax came back with more gripes. I am the Lorax, he coughed and he whiffed. He sneezed and he snuffed. He snargled, he sniffed. Wunzler, he cried with a cruffless croak, Wunzler, you're making such smogulous smoke. My poor swoomy swans, why they can't sing a no note. 
No one can sing who has smog in his throat. And so said the Lorax, please pardon my cough. They cannot live here, so I'm sending them off. Where will they go? I don't hopefully know. They may have to fly for a month or a year to escape from the smog you've smogged up around here. What's more, snapped the Lorax. His dander was up. Let me say a few words about gluppity glup. Your machinery chugs on day and night without stop making gluppity glup. Also, schloppity schlop. And what do you do with the leftover goo? I'll show you, you dirty old onceler man, you. You're glupping the pond where the humming fish hummed. No more can they hum, for their gills are all gummed. So I'm sending them off. Oh, their future is dreary. They'll walk on their fins and get woefully weary in search of some water that isn't so smeary. And then I got mad. I got terribly mad. I yelled at the Lorax, now listen here, Dad. All you have to do, all you do is yap and yap and say bad, 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 bad. Well, I have my rights, sir, and I'm telling you I intend to go on doing just what I do. And for your information, you Lorax, I'm figuring on biggering and biggering and biggering and biggering, turning more truffle trees into thneeds, which everyone, everyone, everyone needs. And at that very moment, we heard a loud whack. From outside in the fields came a sickening smack of an axe on a tree. Then we heard the tree fall, the very last truffle tree of them all. No more trees, no more thneeds, no more work to be done. So in no time, my uncles and aunts and everyone all waved me goodbye. They jumped into my cars and drove away under the smoke-smuggled stars. Now all that was left neath the bad-smelling sky was my big, empty factory, the Lorax and I. The Lorax said nothing, just gave me a glance, just gave me a very sad, sad, backwards glance, as he lifted himself by the seat of his pants. And I'll never forget the grim look on his face when he heisted himself and took leave of this place through a hole in the smog without leaving a trace. And all that the Lorax left here in this mess was a small pile of rocks with one word, unless. Whatever that meant, well, I just couldn't guess. That was a long, long ago, but each day since that day, I've sat here and worried and worried away. Through the years, while my buildings have fallen apart, I've worried about it with all of my heart. But now, said the Onceler, now that you're here, the word of the Lorax seems perfectly clear. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. So, catch, calls the onceler. He lets something fall. It's a truffle seed. It's the last one of all. You're in charge of the last of the truffle seeds, and truffle trees are what everyone needs. Plant a new truffle. Treat it with care. Give it clean water and feed it fresh air. Grow a forest, protect it from axes that hack, then the Lorax and all of his friends may come back. The end. Uh, begin with a question. What do you feel responsible for? I want you to take a moment to consider this. What do you feel responsible for? 
Maybe it's like people or things or actions or stuff like that. And, and, and I kind of want to hear from you, what do you feel responsible for? Family, yes, absolutely. Pets, yes, 100%. Myself, yes, absolutely. The environment. Where did you get that idea from, I wonder? <laughs> yes, 100%. Yeah, each other, in a way, you guess. You started out with a really confident answer, and then <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just picking on you, Lynn. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, some of the first things that end up coming to mind are things like family, our actions, other people. Uh, I'm surprised nobody said, like, work or anything like that. That's kind of like, you know, the whole concept of work is to be responsible for something, but uh, no, not really. Um, Yes, uh, though I, I do wonder how much of our feelings of responsibility really, like true feelings of responsibility, translate into uh, global concerns, national hurt, or even suffering in our own community. You see, often we don't take too much responsibility for outside of our worldview because it, we just don't really feel like it's our problem to address. Or maybe even if we do feel like it's our problem to address, we see that there are lots of other people who might feel the same way, and maybe they could address it better. Maybe they have more time to address it than I have. Maybe it's their responsibility. Uh, this very thought right here is what's known as uh, the bystander effect. And you've heard me talk about this before, but the bystander effect is this psychological phenomena that we don't take responsibility for certain things when there are more people around who could take responsibility for this. Uh, a series of studies were done back in the 60s by uh, researchers Latane and Darley, and they found that the amount of time that it takes someone to take action and seek help varies depending on how many others are present. And so they did a series of experiments. In, in one particular experiment, it was one person in a room. In another experiment, it was this person and two other participants in a room, so three people total. In the third experiment, there was one person in the room and two insiders, people who were on the research team uh, in the room, so three people in the room. And they had the participants fill out these questionnaires, and as they filled out these questionnaires, they started to release safe smoke into the room and waited to see what would happen. And for the rooms that only had one people in them, I was kind of shocked by this number. 70% of people reported the smoke to somebody. But only 70%? Like you're sitting in a room and it starts to fill with smoke and, and you're in the 30% that says, this is fine. <laughs> I don't know. In the uh, room where, uh, where there were two other uh, participants in there, so two other people who were filling out these questionnaires and the smoke starts coming in, at that point, that 70% drops down to 
38% of respondents then told somebody about the smoke coming in. And then in the room where there were two insider plants, these insiders would look up, acknowledge the smoke, and continue working. Less than 10% of the participants would actually report the smoke. Because all of a sudden, we start feeling like, if somebody else isn't going to take responsibility for this, why should I? I'm still amazed that like only 70% of people in just the one person category starts acknowledging this. People are weird. But this wasn't the only experiment they ran. Uh, another experiment uh, found that 70%, again, only 70%, I don't know why, 70% of people would help a woman in distress if they were the only witnesses. However, only 40% offered assistance when other people were present. Now, their experiments came out of an actual event that happened to a woman named Catherine Genovese, uh, also known as Kitty Genovese. In 1964, Kitty was walking back to her apartment from work whenever she was mugged and then subsequently stabbed by a man who attacked her as she was on her own. She called out for help multiple times to dozens, not just one or a handful, but dozens of people who walked by and none of them helped. We have this weird, weird feeling that if other people are around, why do we need to be the one to help? Why should my hands get dirty? Why should I get involved whenever somebody else could do it instead? I'll tell you why. Because unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better, it's not. Responsibility and stewardship. There are two concepts that I want us to consider today, responsibility and stewardship. Uh, first, just to, you know, to pick apart the semantics of it all, the word responsibility that we use today comes from the Latin word respondus, which means to respond or to give an account of, from which we get the same word accountability. So to have responsibility is to be able to respond to or give an account of, namely, our actions or inactions. Stewardship, another word that has uh, some similar connotations to it, uh, is a compound word that really comes from this concept of uh, a manager of someone's property or finances. A manager, somebody who is given the responsibility of someone else's stuff. And so responsibility and stewardship, as we talk about them today, are going to be, are, are, we're going to see, are rooted in obligation. Okay, responsibility and stewardship are rooted in obligation. There is this sense that this is what we are supposed to do. But there is one attribute of responsibility and stewardship that determines how well we will do it. With the concept of responsibility and stewardship, we know this is something we are supposed to do. But add one more attribute to this, and we see that 
we only satisfy our responsibilities and only tend to what we are stewards of in so far as we care about it. Care is that extra identifiable quality that needs to take place in responsibility and stewardship. This is where the lesson of the Lorax comes into play. Unless. That's the word that's left for the onceler at the end of this much longer story than I remember it being. I don't know, maybe stories just go by faster when you're reading them by yourself. Uh, the onceler is left with this message, unless, and the Lorax disappears. And the onceler understands after years of contemplation and the presence of this young lad coming up to inquire about the Lorax, understands this expression, unless, to mean, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Unless. Unless is a contingent expression, right? There is some act of participation that can change things in the word unless. Now, the message of stewardship and responsibility in the Lorax is fairly obvious. Care about the environment. Care about creation. And uh, this message is quite easily backed up in Scripture, believe it or not. Now, we turn our attention first to, why don't we say, Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. And around verse 26, you'll see where God says, Let us make humans in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Sadly, this is the verse that many Christians lean on when opposing environmental justice. This verse, of all of them. And it's because of the word in their dominion. We believe that because we have dominion over creation, then we can treat it however we want. We believe that we don't actually have to take care of it. Because dominion... We do with it what we please, right? But let me ask you to, to consider for a moment, who are the rulers, the kings, the emperors, the leaders that have been honored, not just recognized, but honored in history? I think that you could agree with me that the ones who treated their subjects poorly and used their own dominion for their own profit aren't typically those people. Instead, it's the ones who act mercifully and compassionately for the good of all. See, dominion has a certain responsibility to it, has an attribute of stewardship to it. Whenever we are given dominion over all of creation, we are given the opportunity to see it flourish, not to burn it to the ground. Now, what's funny about th those who like to use Genesis chapter 1 as a reason for not supporting environmental justice is that they never get to chapter 2. 
I don't know what's up with Christians and just picking out verses that they feel comfortable with to use it for their own gain. It's just something that we like to do for whatever reason, and it's horribly obnoxious. Uh, any of you who have joined me in Bible study know that I don't prefer that method. And so we get to chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2 is the earliest account of stewardship in Scripture. Hear these words. God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Now the word keep, whenever Scripture says to keep it, comes from the Hebrew word shamar. And shamar means to manage or preserve. Remember that word stewardship, to manage the property of someone else? You see, we have this uh, silly notion that the world is ours and we forget who actually created it, who actually brought it and us into existence, and we are just stewards managing this property. And so the direct message from the Lorax notes that unless we care a whole awful lot, then nothing's going to get better for the environment. It's not. That that's something that matters. That that's something that we are supposed to be doing because, well, it's kind of been instructed, like the instruction for us from the very beginning to cultivate and to keep it, to manage it. Um, but we don't really care to actually see what kind of damage we might be doing to the environment. We are called to be good stewards of creation. With this in mind, however, you might be wondering, if you're paying attention, why on earth we're looking at the parable of the talents when it comes to creation care. Well, when considering that this passage is most significantly interpreted as uh, Jesus' followers being given a portion of the kingdom of heaven, the good news, the gospel, to share with others and bring a return on investment back to Christ, it can be an unusual passage to approach environmental justice and creation care with. But the reason that... I want to bring up this passage in mind of the Lorax is that stewardship doesn't just stop at creation care. In fact, there are four areas in Scripture, four areas in Scripture where we are called to be stewards. And now these are four condensed areas. We could parse these out into a number, number of other uh, more singular concepts. But these four, uh, in order of their appearance, kind of, begin first with creation, as noted in Genesis 1 and 2. Of course, if you've uh, read through the Old Testament, you know that there are hundreds of commandments, laws, in the Old Testament that pertain to caring for creation. Specific ways to till the land so that it even gets rest at certain times, specific ways to, uh, to participate in creation. The second act of stewardship to which we are called is our relationship with God. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, where humanity must learn 
not to choose themselves over God. Genesis chapter 3, if I could remind you, is the moment where they take from the forbidden fruit and, uh, you know, give in to temptation and their own self-indulgence rather than following what God has for their lives. This is a central theme to the entire Bible and is kind of embedded in every single verse. Our relationship with God, both collective and individually, our relationship with God is of paramount importance. Those of you who are in our Tuesday morning Bible study on the book of Kings have seen that whenever people don't maintain a healthy relationship with God, particularly a humble relationship with God, it doesn't go well for them. Third is that we are called to be stewards of other people. Now, this is an odd concept. This is uh, not the kind of we are called to be stewards of other people like slavery and, and stuff like that. No, no, no. This is that we, are, we have a responsibility to take care of one another. And we see this as early as Genesis chapter 4, whenever Cain murders Abel and then presents a particular question to God. Am I my brother's keeper? To which the obvious answer is, yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's like the whole point of being a human being. Oh, how often we neglect that. But this is also how most of the instructions in Scripture manifest themselves in this concept that we are responsible for one another. That the people who are poor and suffering are our responsibility. The people who are living overindulgent and selfish lifestyles are our responsibility. The people right around us are our responsibility. And the people globally are our responsibility. And then fourth, the fourth capacity in which we are called to be stewards is of ourselves. And this is noted across Genesis chapter 3 and 4, as humanity must face the consequences for their actions. When we are not good stewards of who we are as people, we're going to experience the consequences of that. This concept is kind of rooted in the cautionary tales of Scripture. So, there are four distinct areas of stewardship to which we are called, and each area of our responsibility comes down to one simple concept. How much do you care? In our passage today, the master responds, Well, good, well done, good and trustworthy slave. Of course, we might be more familiar with the expression, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Uh, to those who have actually been responsible stewards of what the master had left for them. But the third, who buries the talent for it to be ignored, gets the response, you wicked and lazy slave. Wicked and lazy. Oh, that one lazy hits me hard. Rather than taking responsibility for what he had been made a steward of, this servant acts as if he simply does not care. He is lazy because he could have made a difference with what he had responsibility over, but he refused to care. I wonder, how often do we ignore our responsibility of stewardship to creation, God, others, and ourselves? Are we being faithful in caring for creation? Are we nurturing our relationship with God? Are we loving others as we have been loved? Are we treating ourselves with respect in mind, body, and soul? In other words, do we care about what God cares about? 
And so that's my challenge for us this week. Care about what God cares about. This is the challenge of the Lorax. So much of our lives are, are spent complaining about the way things are. Right? We, I mean, we have complaints for everything now, whether it be like gas prices or politics or whether it just be like, you know, the, the number of potholes that we had to come over getting here this morning, you know, whatever it is. We've got a complaint for just about everything going on uh, in, in our world and in our worldview without us being willing to make any kind of difference. And I wonder if we care enough about something to complain about it, we should probably care enough about that to make a difference. I love uh, this quote from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, complaining about a problem without posing a solution is called whining. If we see that God has called us stewards and given us responsibility in life, perhaps we can also see that if we're going to be lazy about these things, we can certainly expect them to lead to our suffering. If we're going to complain about these things, it's not going to make a difference. And if we're not going to make a difference, it's not going to matter. But if we care about what God cares about with the same fervor that God cares, we might just see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. This is the responsibility of, that we as stewards have been given. Let us pray.